Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes that they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Today's guest is one I've wanted to talk to since we launched this podcast and could not be more excited to kick off season three with the amazing John Montgomery. John is probably best known for his work as host of Amazing Race Canada since back in 2013, but John gained international notoriety for his gold medal win in Skeleton during the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. John joined me via video chat from his home in beautiful Victoria, BC, and we had a great conversation about life, about his meteoric rise to fame, about his infamous beer walk, and we even reminisced a little about our shared hometown of Russell, Manitoba. In a first for Because and Effect, our entire conversation is on the Winnipeg Foundation's YouTube channel, so if you'd like to see us chatting while you listen, you can go there as well. But without any further ado, here's my conversation with John Montgomery. John Montgomery, thank you for being on the Because and Effect podcast, uh, host of Amazing Race Canada, gold medalist, and pride and joy of Russell, Manitoba. So thank you for being with us today. Nolan Bicknell, thank you for creating the Because and Effect podcast and being a part of it. Because I think what you're doing, brother, is uh, talking about some awesome things that people are involved in and uh, spreading the good word, man. That's the whole goal. I mean, we're going to talk about how you've been spreading the good words since sort of this whole whirlwind uh, took off back in 2010. But full disclosure, we got to talk about we're both from the same hotel, hometown. We both went to the same high school, major prep Almost school. Almost like a hotel, Russell, Manitoba. A little bit, eh? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, your dad was the principal of our school. We, we both went to the same school. What, what do you remember about Russell, first of all? And like, what was it like growing up in a small town and, and just being from there? And, and bring me back to what it was like for you. Well, I remember that not many of us got to grow up on a street with our own last name on it, Nolan. Um, but That's for inside us, baseball. Yeah. Uh, but for those of us that were, uh, say, on Memorial Avenue, you were never a stone's throw from any one of your buddies' houses. And growing up in an area with such a small geographic footprint as Russell has, as most rural prairie communities have, you pretty much know everybody. And... The good and the bad, uh, there's both ends of the spectrum. And and I think that the bad is so minute that it is completely overshadowed by the good of being a small town boy. And and for a guy like me that maybe did some miserable things and made some bad choices and decisions in his life, I had to pay a penance for all of them because I got busted for all of it. Um, For instance, I egged my sixth grade teacher's house and and I was wearing a hood and the lady across the street didn't know who I was but she recognized my Blinken bicycle. Are, are you kidding me? She recognized my bike and, and, and knew who I was. And so I had to uh, atone for those types of errors. And I think that set the stage for uh, not necessarily uh, making better decisions, but understanding that there were consequences and that when I did screw up, I had to own it. I had to make face-to-face restitution. And that was always the hardest part about getting in trouble was the face-to-face uh, saying yes, uh, saying I did this. And I think that shapes an individual for taking ownership, both of things that go wrong in your life, the things that go right in your life, and the things that we, I guess, need to do in order to be fully functioning, uh, capable human beings contributing to this landscape of ours. And in Canada, uh, we've got one of the best landscapes figuratively and, uh, and literally in the entire world. And having, like you mentioned, a dad that was the principal of the school and a mom that was involved in um, town business and chamber of commerce and dad was a political guy and town council. They were 
quintessential uh, Russellites. And they were such a big part of the community. And I witnessed that firsthand, wanting to be able to both pay back what Russell has given me and, and be an individual in the community like my folks uh, was, was a great opportunity to see it uh, and then now trying to embody it. And now while I'm not a teacher and I don't have the capacity to affect kids' lives on a daily basis and shape young people, uh, I've got to leverage whatever it is that I've got to try and pay back what I owe to Canadians and to be an athlete, to go to the games you're relying on Canadian taxpayers to foot that bill, to give you a small monthly stipend, to give you the impetus and the, I guess, the uh, almost the encouragement that sport can mean more than just silly tobogganing. And I have a debt of gratitude that I have to pay back to Canadians and I'll always wave the Russell Manitoba banner, brother. And that's what I am trying to do. And when I say I, that's the royal eye. It's a big fat we. It's me, my wife, and whatever team that we develop and uh, try and do good work through. Well, it's character, right? You're a character guy. Your dad obviously instilled that in you and your mom as well, Joan. Um, but take me back to Whistler. Like, I'm sure you've probably revisited this in your mind and for people and interviews that you've had before, but take me back to that whirlwind. I, I, doing some of the um, research for this has been so much fun because I got to relive those experiences and walk, watching you take that walk and swing that beer and do those interviews and celebrate as you did on the podium is just so iconic. So like, take me back. What were you feeling when you first saw the time and you realized, holy crap, uh, I'm, I won. I, I got the gold. Well, coming across the finish line, I, don't, I was very rarely a, a, an audible guy inside my helmet. I never said things out loud, but coming up the finish line after my final run, Martins Dukers, the best skeleton racer in the world in history, uh, has, had still yet to go. He was in the lead. He had the gold medal position coming into the fourth and final run. And when I crossed the finish line, I said to myself, out loud inside my helmet as I was slowing down, coming up the outrun, I was like, that's got to be enough. That's got to be enough. Because all I could do during those games, I couldn't control anything other than my own performance. And I was just racing the clock. I couldn't control what Martins Dukers did. I couldn't control what Frank Rommel did, Jeff Payne, Mike Douglas, any of the other competitors. I couldn't control that. All I had control over was the execution of my game plan. And when I said, that's got to be enough, what I was referencing was the fact that I really couldn't have done any better. That was just about as much as I could have ever hoped or asked myself for in, in that situation. And Martins came down and he had one small error and it was enough to put me over the edge. Coming into the final and last turn, he still had an 800s lead on me. And by the time he had gone through the final corner, one corner of 64 that we did, it was called Thunderbird. I had two Thunderbirds emblazoned on the side of my helmet. I overtook him by 1500s of a second and came out 700s ahead. And, it, and if you're sitting there right now, Nolan, blink your eyes. That took a tenth of a second. So seven hundredths of a second over three minute, 23.7 seconds or something like that, over six kilometers of ice, over 64 corners, comes down to about half a sled length, uh, roughly a meter or so in the speed that we're traveling. And at 0 0.07 of a second, that's what that margin is. And it's, it, it almost defies logic. It's hard to get your brain wrapped around that nuance and that we spent those, I guess, it was about eight years of sliding time building towards that moment. All the work that went into preparation, 
who knows where that 700s came from but i got to think that it was the the support from canada that that was the differentiator and when i saw the plus 7 pop up for martins as he crossed the finish line coming um it was electric. I think that's the only thing. I've been shocked by an outlet and a plug-in before, and <laughs> that seems to jog a memory with what it felt like. It was like electricity coursing through my body from my toes and up through my uh, pumping fist, and, and it was uncontrollable. I, I, I couldn't think my way through that reaction, that moment, that outburst of energy, and I did have to take a step back and apologize to Martins because you never want to celebrate when somebody else has lost had i come down and been victorious and 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 held that lead my whole time and was the number one guy from tip to tail that might celebration might have been warranted and, and not uh, required an apology but as it was i i did owe martin's an apology because i was cheering vigorously um when someone else had lost and, and although i had become the victor in that moment i would have liked to have been a little bit more sedate but it turned out uh, beautifully and I'm glad that I reacted the way that I did and at least had enough uh, uh, ownership of the moment to uh, say, sorry, buddy. I, I was a little overzealous. Well, what is more quintessential Canadian <laughs> apologizing for winning? Right. A there was, right? there was a sorry in there. Damn it. I was trying not to be that guy and say, sorry, but I wasn't apologizing for winning. I was just saying sorry for my reaction. All an athlete I'm sure wants to do after so much preparation for the Olympics amateur or professional is just perform to your very best in yep. the moment. Right. So how much mental preparation goes into that and how much like is how much of it is a mental game? How much of it is a physical game of making sure you hit the turns properly, but it, it's gotta be 95% mental or what, what, how explain that to me. 90% mental, 95% mental. And the rest of it is in your head as they say. <laughs> um, and it is so, so true, especially in a sport like, tobogganing like skeleton racing uh, because the the physical part of it is just the push really the rest of it um we're steering and it's timing and it's control and it's pressure and so on but it's more about the nuances it's more about the execution of a game plan and actually feeling things uh, if you are steering visually meaning by you see something and then react to it traveling at those speeds with the um with the limited visibility that we did have and do have it's 15 feet behind you already and you are in a world of hurt and you, you don't have time. Your brain can't react that quick to your eyeballs. So if you steer by feel and pressure and, uh, and more of a game plan, then you have much greater chance for success. And when I came into the sport, I had no idea how I was supposed to visualize, how I was supposed to do the mental preparation because as a hockey player, I went out there I worked hard and uh, where I was faltering and lacking, my teammates had the capacity to pick up slack and that's what a team is all about. But when you're a tobogganer, when you're a skeleton athlete, you account for every nanosecond on that track and it's only 60 seconds. So if you can't be 100% completely dialed in and focused on what you're doing, then you haven't got a chance. And I think that's maybe why I had uh, success in skeleton racing because it was a short window of, uh, of attention and my attention span is somewhat limited perhaps. So I was forced into focusing for 60 seconds and then the practice and the development of the visualization lent itself to becoming, I could do that run once in a day or twice in a day, maybe five times in a day, but I could visualize that run 
a thousand times a day. And I did that every time I saw 1111, I put myself into the context of putting out good energy into the world of uh, what kind of a performance I wanted to realize in 2010. Every opportunity I had to glom on to some sort of a, a little thing, like seeing 1111 on a clock or one, two, three, four, or uh, any opportunity you get to blow out a candle and make a wish, any opportunity you get to put it out there that this is what I want from life and in the world, I was doing. I was measuring things on, does this get me closer to that goal or does this take away from my opportunity to realize that goal? With balance, of course, I wasn't the solely single-minded, uh, straight focus of you know, 2010. I, I did imbibe and uh, I did have balance in my life and uh, eat balance, but I did ask myself about the type of things that were coming into my world, into my sphere of influence. Does this get me closer? Does this take me further away from my goal? And uh, every aspect of my life was focused on 2010. And mental, mental preparation was, I'd say, the biggest learning curve outside of the actual sliding part of it that I had to realize and develop in myself to be able to realize a great performance on the day that mattered most. Well, that sounds like something that can be applied to everyday life, right? You want to surround yourself with things that improve your day-to-day -day or improve your family or friends or, or your situation, right? Like, have you, have you started to apply that to just your, your regular career now and your, well, not that Amazing Race is super regular hosting that, but, you know, have you applied that on your day-to-day -day as well? You have to. And I think that when you see the, you know, the benefits of doing that in another aspect of your life, it becomes easy and it does bleed into other areas and so as I move forward I now think about is this getting me closer to my, my my physical goals that I am now having to strive for because they just happened before by proxy almost as a byproduct of wanting to do tobogganing and going to the Olympics I was physically fit I was training somebody was training me and now I have to be the uh, you know the captain of this team and and uh, captain of the ship and steer myself towards physicality because it's not going to be done for me. And so I'm having to do that now. And uh, it's not easy, but in business, uh, again, I ask myself, is this getting me closer or further away from these goals that I'm setting for myself? And I do talk about it in the context of, and sort of thought process that is really generic. And if I am communicating, I try not to get so nuanced in my approach to things that it doesn't it's not relative to other people. So this is the basic framework for any individual seeking a goal. And when you start to ask yourself these questions on this matrix of, am I getting closer or further? Um, the answers are pretty telling and you don't have to, you know, uh, labor over, is this the right choice or the wrong choice? You know. Yeah. So not a lot of people win <laughs> gold medals. A very f even smaller minuscule amount of people become sort of a like icon is a you know charged word but you were everywhere and I was in Vancouver during those Olympics and I remember telling people yeah you know a buddy of mine uh, is in skeleton we'll see how he does and then the next day everyone was like was that him was that the guy and I was like I, I know I and it was just a wave of popularity and a wave of you just made you were so quintessentially Canadian it was so proud to see that happening so like what was that whirlwind like and that wave of support and that wave of, you know, you're the guy you, you were Mr. Canada for weeks and weeks in the following. So like, how did you deal with that? Well, just to frame it a little bit and to go back 
you said not many folks win a gold medal. Maybe it's not uh, the, the biscuit. Maybe it's not the biscuit itself, the golden color and a physical object. But everybody, nearly everybody, can see themselves in that moment, um, in that uh, gold medal moment, because we've all got our gold medal moments. And mine just played out on national television at the Olympics, which gives you a platform and an opportunity to show other people what it is that you've been working towards quietly for eight years where nobody has even heard of the thing that you're doing uh, because it's uh, peripheral and nobody's playing skeleton racing. But uh, everybody's got it from police officers to nurses to single parents to uh, entrepreneurs to anybody who is setting a big goal for themselves. My gold medal moment isn't going to be the same as everybody else's, but we've all got our gold medal moment. And so that sense of accomplishment was, you know, it, it was the selfish pursuit of athletic excellence. But when that resonates with your countrymen, with your fellow brothers and sisters, the pride in that accomplishment just, it, it swells beyond what you had hoped for for yourself because now other people are uh, filled with joy in their hearts and uh, have this energy about them because of your achievement. And I, I say your, it should be because of our achievement. It's a collective thing. I was the proverbial tip of the iceberg that you see flying down the mountain uh, on his crazy carpet with rails at the skeleton track. But what you don't see is 36 million Canadians buoying me up, giving me a sense of purpose and a sense of direction. And that this isn't just the selfish athletic pursuit of excellence. It, it is more, it can mean more. And so the way that it played out with me just being genuine John and drinking that pitcher of beer like anybody would have done at the Central um, oh, yeah. on any given night of the week. Somebody buys you a pitcher, the only way to say thank you when you're from Russell or from Manitoba or from Canada, let's say, is to take a good hearty swill. That says thanks. And when my beer angel presented me with that pitcher on that night after the, the, the competition was over after I just completed my doping testing and was coming down the mountain to my interview with Jen Hedger. It was like manifestation uh, big time. I was like, Oh, I just love a beer right now. And then oh, oh, wow. here's my beer angel with a pitcher, <laughs> not just a pint. And she almost knocks out an RCMP officer <laughs> while passing it to me. And my life at that moment, Nolan, where I was walking straight to Jen Hedger, uh, it, it took a tangent. And that beer moment is the reason that we're having this conversation now, is the reason that I'm sitting here in Vic, is the reason that I am uh, amazingly attached uh, to a project and group like the Amazing Race Canada. Uh, I, again, play a small role in that, but it's the visible role. And so I, I treasure that. It's the single greatest job. I, sorry for anybody that loves their job out there, but this one is especially, well, tailor suited to me. And it's a dream. Uh, I'll do it for as long as they ask me back. And all of these things have, were manifest as a result of that beer moment. Not the medal, not me doing anything else other than just being an average Joe. And that's what granted people access, I believe, to that moment. They maybe otherwise couldn't have seen themselves at the Olympics sliding down the mountain at 146 kilometers per hour. It, winning a gold medal, but every Canadian can see themselves celebrating a milestone met, a goal achieved in a typically Canadian way. And that's with a celebratory large pint or pitcher of beer or something frosty. 
and, and just being themselves, singing O Canada, not wow. taking themselves so seriously that they couldn't show an aspect of their personality. And I, I was, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, blessed to be 30 years old in that moment so that I could be myself. Mm -hmm. I'd been behind a microphone in front of an audience before and I wasn't, um, you know, not ashamed, but I, I wasn't uh, scared to be authentically myself, to be exuberant, to be joyful, to put myself out there. I know that if I was ever going to get cut some slack, it'd be that moment. And, and I do fret over what people think of me and, and what, how I might be perceived, which is probably shown in my lack of social media presence uh, because I do uh, fear being misinterpreted uh, or uh, have somehow the meaning in my words be misconstrued. And I don't always consider them carefully enough. I, 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 I labor over them, but still it's not enough because I try to be funny sometimes and I should just shut my mouth. But <laughs> well, it was just a real moment. That was what it was, right? Like, far too often in professional sports or amateur sports, we see the same typical celebration, the same interviews afterwards of, yeah, you know, we played hard, did everything came together, blah, blah, blah. And it was just this pure, real moment for, you know, 36 million Canadians to, to feel that same moment with you. It was so cool. I'm going to ask about Amazing Race in a second, but let's go back to the, the positive sort of attitude and, and, the, and the affirmations because as a motivational and inspirational speaker, you kind of tend to talk about that stuff a lot. So like how important is it not only to think that you're capable of achieving a goal, but to actually truly believe it and this is going to happen and, and making that happen. And that's the crux of my public presentations today. Uh, the keynotes that I will be delivering talk about self-efficacy and self-efficacy as a definition is the unwavering belief that you will accomplish that which you seek. And when I looked it up and I, and I heard about self-efficacy, um, I like, well, it sounds interesting, kind of sounds dirty, but I'll look it up. <laughs> and, um, and when I heard the unwavering belief that I will accomplish that which I seek, unwavering was this powerful word. I'm getting goosebumps on my arms just thinking about it. And this open window is cold. So uh, it might have more to do with that. But unwavering was, was such a powerful meaning because it was almost unflappable. It meant that it didn't matter how this was going to play out. My belief that I can realize the best version of myself on the day that matters most is where I want to get myself in every aspect of my life. And I think if there's something relatable and if there's something that I can share with an audience, some of the things that, uh, some of the tools that I used to build self-efficacy value that I'll refer to it as were the things that maybe I can leave behind. And I share those through storytelling and through my personal journey through the sport of skeleton racing. But that power, that belief, that's a game changer. I mean, you get out of bed in the morning because you believe there's an opportunity to uh, do something today, to have a better day than tomorrow. But if you don't believe that, hmm. that's why people uh, with depression lie in bed because there is no reason. There's nothing compelling. There is no pull, no push, no drive, no drama, no nothing. It's just flat. Yeah, and yeah. this self-efficacy value, it it breathes life into every aspect of your life because there's now possibility. And when you believe in something, you do the hard work. You then realize the nuanced progression that you're looking for. You see those gains. That's uh, further evidence that you can make it to your goal. And, and it's compounding, but it does start with working on the basics. 
And the basics of confidence is the conversations that we're having with ourselves. And we are the barrier uh, between us believing and not believing. It's not other people. Uh, if other people are detractors and naysayers, it's up to us to block that out. It's us to us to surround ourselves with people who can build us up. And then taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves to celebrate small victories, to control your attitude, to watch other people do what you want to do is so powerful. And then, like I said, surrounding yourself with a positive a team. These are all aspects of building this self-efficacy, which to me, it's the passport to success, man. It's what every journey begins with. Doesn't matter whether it's scholastic, whether it's a charitable endeavor. If you start with belief, you'll do the work. You can get there. It seems as though young people would have the hard, well, no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't generalize, but perhaps most of the time when you're younger, you don't necessarily have that belief. There's a lot more internal chatter kind of saying, you know, you can't do this. You shouldn't do this. Everyone's going to think you're stupid, blah, 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 whatever. Um, so in your work, do you try to reach out to as many youth as you can? Or like, what, what do you find when you, when you talk to the youth of today and trying to get them into sport and get in, them into the confidence and get it, them into the self-efficacy mindset to really achieve what they can potentially achieve their potential really? Well, uh, being a, a youngster, being a young person is uh, both good and bad. You've got the lack of experience, uh, which isn't going to allow you to be able to say, well, I've done this before. I can apply the lessons learned from that experience to this experience. But that lack of experience is also a blessing. Sometimes you haven't got a shit hot clue that this is harebrained and you're just going for it because you're a kid and you don't know any better and you're just putting yourself out there and you're failing faster and you're doing all the right stuff by virtue of the fact that you don't know any better. But if you have had some tough falls and if you have had doubt creep into your uh, young uh, mental framework, that's challenging to get past and move beyond. And so, yeah, there's a lot more out there for young people to chew on these days when you're looking at social media, when you're seeing what other people are doing through a lens that's not true uh, in really any aspect of life. This is but one small chasm or, 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 or portion of an individual's life experience and you're putting it out there that this is what they're like all the time. They've never failed. They've never uh, had to take a step back. They're, they're always on top. And when you see that, and as a youngster, you're internalizing that, it could become uh, stifling. And so young people have uh, a tougher road to hoe, I think, these days than certainly you and I did, just with the presence of social media, just with the amount of information out there. As an adult, I struggle with being overwhelmed with the amount of information that I take in through media these days and the necessity to sift through it all mm. and ask those questions of yourself just taking it at face value i think we have all come to the realization that you can't you have to consume media with some sense of critical thinking in mind and so maybe that's the aspect that is missing is critical thinking and mm. uh, and i think I've never, I'm just verbalizing this now and sort of thinking on the spot, but young folks and how we might be able to mitigate some of the damages uh, through social media is teaching more critical thinking aspects yeah. in life and to teach them to look at what they see, not to necessarily change their habits completely. Sure, limited. If you're on social media for 24 hours a day, that's too much. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, but trying to 
pretend like it's not out there, like it doesn't exist, like it's not pervasive in our lives, I think is, you know, burying your head in the sand and pretending like it's not happening. You can't do that. But teaching critical thinking about what it is that we are consuming, how it is affecting us, asking ourselves some pointed questions might be insulative, might be protectionist in having what has become uh, epidemic almost yeah. in the uh, detriment to young people's lives uh, might be a way to prevent that. And uh, out of that, I, I imagine we can start to build on working on believing in, uh, and building confidence. But Very well said. Yeah, for sure. D at what point did you recognize that you had a platform? Was it, you know, shortly after the win? Was it because, and did that weigh on you at all? Or did you think like, okay, well, you know, I got to be aware now it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword, right? I got to be aware of what I say that because it's going that to affect was millions. That awareness <laughs> yeah, of watching what I do more specifically in public mm -hmm. and how I act and say, I wasn't on social media at the time and, uh, and still am not prolific on there. So uh, that wasn't uh, an aspect that I really had to come to terms with immediately and having a platform. The, the platform sort of grew organically as I began to say yes to corporate speaking events. And then as the show came along in 2013, uh, that has changed things as well. I'd say now when I go out in public, people will more often recognize my voice as it happened yesterday buying this microphone for this podcast. Thank you. The lady recognized my voice and not necessarily my face with it bearded up and so on. And, uh, and more people will probably now know me and young people and new Canadians and, uh, and everybody else for the show than 2010 and people's familiarity it's still Canada so nobody's coming up to you I still have a great deal of anonymity I think and I still am very much enjoying uh, public life because well people don't come up and bug you or anything and I don't know how often I get recognized but uh, you know these these things have Grown slowly. I wasn't, uh, I haven't never had to deal with Bieber, Drake-ish uh, yeah. type things. I mean, I'm just a simple. Maybe for a week, maybe for a week or two after the win, it was probably. Yeah, at which point you're embracing it and, yeah. uh, and then it quickly goes away. So this platform that I've got to be Joe Canadian, and I think that I have a responsibility now because of my association with Canadiana and, and things to champion not a responsibility. I guess it's a privilege. I get to measure about our country and the things that I would love to preserve and the things that I would maybe like to be able to contribute to, uh, to make this landscape, this place of ours, this uh, country better and at least an attempt. And so it's with the growing, I guess, awareness through the show that I am able to now attach myself to organizations in an ambassadorial role like Ducks Unlimited Canada, uh, the largest conservation uh, group in North America, um, you know, preserving these precious waterways and the education that goes into it. Initially, it was a bunch of guys that wanted to make sure that they had a place to shoot ducks. Yeah. But uh, what it's grown into is a society and an organization that protects the wetlands and the watersheds and the tributaries and the the swamps in our on the agricultural land that when we bulldoze them over seed them all that runoff is getting into the large 
bodies of water and estuaries without uh, and going on i'm like you can tell that i'm passionate about this stuff it's not even why you're asking me about it but great uh, as well as sport and so our natural environment i think canada's well, our, our physical landscapes and our resources, our mountains, our scenery, all the stuff that's physical here in Canada is the best in the world. But beyond that, above that, our greatest single resource, in my mind, in my opinion, is our people. And that's, that's where Canada's true strengths lie. And uh, to be able to, I guess, applaud what it is that I love about our country and try and make sure that those aspects of its physical nature remain as beautiful as they are and uh, enrich the lives of the people within the country through sport. Those are the metrics that I would like to, and my wife and I have, I guess, honed in on, both because of the impact that it's had on our lives with sport as young people and what we truly treasure about this natural country of ours. And uh, that's what I guess we are going to use this platform, which we came in through, into uh, through 2010, uh, to try and to try and affect change in and, and use that platform. But I, we didn't just all of a sudden find ourselves inundated with uh, this social media platform and ability to do things. It happened organically, and so mm-hmm. it wasn't overwhelming. But it is something that we think about and we consciously approach. So you've got kids sport, you've got sort of the right to play, you've got Ducks Unlimited. What, are, what do you tell kids when you're speaking to them or what do you hope to sort of uh, pass on when it comes to talking about the importance of playing either team sports or solo sports or, you know, what, what, what sorts of traits do you hope that kids gain through playing sports? Well, here's the thing. I think sports are incredibly valuable for the kids that want to play them. If you don't want to play sports, uh, your interest isn't there. Your heart's not there. It, it's probably elsewhere. And you don't need sports solely to realize what it's like to be a part of a community, to work together, mm. to accomplish big goals. But if you want to play sports, but you can't access it because life, man, I mean, just paying bills, the overhead of a family on a monthly basis these days with inflation, with the cost of food is stifling. And uh, hard work and good parents in lots of cases simply can't put their kids into extracurricular sports activities because the costs are extraneous. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, no, no man, (laughs) no kid should go that wants to should go without sport in this country. We have the dollars, we have the resources, we have the people, we have the capacity, there is the space and there is the time. And no kid that wants to play should be on the sidelines looking in. The types of benefits that can be realized just through sport alone uh, are absolutely tremendous. And I don't speak about this from, you know, having studied it in school and (laughs) and theoretically, scientists say, uh, BS, man. I I know I've beta tested with this myself. And I know what physicality does to the brain, to the body's chemistry, to our sense of self. All of these things, when we're physical, are heightened, are imbibed with everything that we need to go out there and do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and get back up and the next thing and the next thing and get knocked down and get back up. Without it, uh, lots of times you're not getting back up. Lots of times you're looking for the duck out. Lots of the times you're looking for the closest uh, exit on stage left. <laughs> and, and that's the quitting attitude. And that's when you'll give up. But sport teaches resiliency. It teaches uh, communication. It, it teaches all the things that we're going to need to lean into to be 
well-rounded, productive members of society. I'm not talking about going to the Olympics. I'm not talking about being a Theo Fleury and going to the NHL. What I'm talking about is just living a positive uh, life, which is contributing to your general surroundings and the people who are most important to you. And that's what sport can give people. And if you want to go to the end of the line and become an NHLer, if you've got the skill or an Olympian, if you've got the heart and perhaps um, uh, maybe good sight to know nobody else plays skeleton racing, maybe I can do this sport. Uh, <laughs> if that's in your heart, go for it. But that's not why I want young people that want to play sports to have that chance. Uh, it's for all those other things that I've just spoke for about. Sure. Yeah. Playing hockey growing up, I never read, well, even to this day, didn't really realize the impact and the, uh, the cost, you know, going to tournaments and the hotels and the gear every year. And I had to tell mom and dad said, just thank you so much for the things uh, that you sacrificed to allow me to be on these teams and to make all these friends and to have all these memories and to gain all these skills. So it's, it's, it, I, I hear what you're saying for sure. Anybody that's listening to this right now, watching, hearing it, what happens? If you ever played a sport in your life, call somebody that gave you that opportunity, that uh, took the time to coach you. Mr. Nixon, say, yeah. Hey. Shout out to Mr. Nixon. Thank Best you. Coach I've ever had. And then maybe uh, go one step further and, and see what you could do to donate a hockey stick to, uh, to a, a local uh, somebody or a, an equipment uh, drive. Or if you've got the time, donate to coach. Or if you've got a couple bucks, give to an organization that – gets kids off the sideline and into the game. I and mean, that's where you can make change, but start with a thank you. It's beautiful. I love it. John, thank you for this. Uh, at the end of our time together, I asked the same seven questions of all of our guests. We call it the just because segment. Uh, are you okay cool. to do that? Sort of yeah, seven rapid way, fire questions. Rapid fire, do I got to be quick? Uh, be, I mean, you're always quick, right? You got the, yeah, right. you got the you gift. Heard me today. I'm a windbag. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. We'll just go and we'll see, we'll see how she goes. Uh, question one, what is the first cause you actually ever remember caring about? <sighs> caring about? I don't know. Um, I don't know that I cared about what the Lions were doing in Russell, but I remember canvassing, going door to door. Mm -hmm. I was up and down Bicknell Boulevard. I remember coming to your house, brother, <laughs> to do silent riders. You ask your mom and dad if they ever remember me at their door, way across town, no reason to be in your neighborhood. And it was to ask for money for Lions. I was doing silent riders. I was inspired by the person that got the most silent riders got 50 bucks and uh, I would go out. The Lions Club did so much good work in the community. My dad was a lion and I always remember doing the silent riders for the cross country ski derby. And uh, I was asking everybody, but I canvassed every door in town multiple times for political uh, canvassing for uh, charitable stuff for my dad. And then later in life, I developed the capacity to care. And well, right to play and kid sport were definitely the first two that I really had passion and vive la joy for. And, uh, and I continue to carry that and wave that flag today. Did you always have that, you know, you just mentioned that you wanted that, that number one, whoever sold the most got the $50. Did you always have that? I got to win. I got to win this. Was that always inherent in you? It wasn't always that I had to win. If I didn't, I wasn't the kid that um, freaked out and, and owned it forever. I'm here today, gone tomorrow kind of thing. But I was competitive and I always tried to win. Um, yeah, not at all costs, not at a, <laughs> I'll kill you, but uh, yeah, I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to work hard. Feels good to win. And I would say that my ability to accept defeat graciously uh, while at the end of my 
skeleton career, I don't know how gracious I was in defeat all the time because I was really frustrated about some external factors. Um, but as a youngster, I was over it pretty quickly and I, and I, I'm pretty quick to get over things. So that's an important skill too, that, you know, that sport can really help with learning how to accept defeat. Right. And you're, yeah. there's going to be a lot of defeats in your life. So you got to figure out how to More bounce back from them. More than wins, man. Yeah, for sure. Question two, if money, politics, and sort of logistics were no issue at all, what's the, if you could snap your fingers, what's the first thing you would do in support of your current cause? Uh, well, I guess it would be any kid that wants to play any sport that they want to play. You got it, kiddo. And you know what? That's not probably too far outside of the realms of possibilities for, well, let's just say a country like Norway, who have about $250,000 per resident surplus. Wow. Think about that. $250,000 US dollars per Norwegian is what they have in surplus. And out of that 250K, you telling me you couldn't find a couple bucks to put a kid in sport? For and sure. that's just uh, an example of a country that has made, um, made good on their resource play. And, uh, well, it, it's telling of a few things, but mm-hmm. um, maybe we can get ourselves there too one day. Love it. Uh, question three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about, uh, we could call it about amateur sport or about, about sp- maybe sports in general, getting kids to play sports? I think the biggest misunderstanding would be that losing is bad Mm. and that uh, when you put a child in a situation to potentially lose that you're setting them up for defeat and I would look at it the other way if you don't give a child an opportunity to realize what it's like to work towards something and sometimes failing and sometimes being victorious, then they'll never really realize what it takes to, to do anything. Right. And that's a blanket statement uh, like I've never heard, but there's a shred of truth to it. And that if you don't learn to get back up, if you don't learn to fight, to dig deep, to give of yourself to a cause, to a situation, to an event, to something, when are you going to learn it? I don't know. That's a great one. I've heard recently too that some parents, because you know we live in a world where we have a lot of opportunities and privileges and not a lot of conflict or challenges, that some parents are feeling the need to almost manufacture conflict in their kids' lives to like give them a, you know, like your life is easy. You have everything you could possibly need. <laughs> and to try to kind of be like, well, now, you know, try this. And you know, but so it's kind of a weird balance to find of like, yes, we want our kids to have lives that are better than our own, but we don't want them to be soft or, you know, you don't want them to not ever fail. Right. Cause oh. you need to fail. I, I mean, we were, my wife was chastised on Instagram for having our, at the time, I guess he would have been about two and three quarters, uh, year old son, uh, sorting recycling with me. And chastised? Uh, yeah, she was criticized by being like, uh, what did the person say to her? Just let kids be kids or, or something like that. Uh, something to that effect uh, to which she and I both looked at each other and, and laughed out loud. Like this individual has no idea. Like where <laughs> this might be the only place in the world that a kid, first of all, doesn't have responsibilities. Um, there's kids as young as four walking miles to get water. Not that that's right, but that's a part of their upbringing. And so if my little guy can't learn to sort recycling uh, by plastics and tin and paper 
uh, to uh, preserve his environment, to do a little bit of manual labor, to get his hands maybe a little bit dirty, uh, to realize why we do this work. When is he going to learn it? And how is he going to learn it? And if I'm not teaching him, who is? And what are they teaching him? So wow. uh, you're never going to please everybody, but uh, doing a little bit of work, doing a lot of work. <laughs> I treasured my upbringing. I mean, I had to do physical. Now that's something that I relish because my, my core job isn't physical and it isn't manual. Mm -hmm. And so I think historically, they called it work because it was work. Now we go to work and we sit at a desk, yeah. uh, but we need to move our bodies. We need to build, we need to create, we need to do something more than rubber stamp stuff, working on an assembly line. And uh, that has yeah. been the degradation of man. We used to have jobs, we used to have roles, we used to have community, all that's been stripped from us. Yeah. Pretty soon we're gonna be straight out of that Wally -E movie, floating around on a ship with our Slurpee in our hand on a, on a buggy without any concept of connection. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll fight against it for as long as we can. No doubt. That's my, that's my doomsday prophecy for yeah. you. And I know we're not headed there, but sometimes it feels like it, man. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, question four, what is a time in your life, I assume there's probably been quite a few, where you had to pivot because a plan wasn't working out how you thought it was going to? Well, um, I guess uh, we've been talking about skeleton racing, uh, and it's dealing with well, I'll frame it in the context of attitude. Um, in 2006, I made the World Cup team. My best friend, later, he would become my coach. Uh, he protested that. So we were sliding against each other. We were buddies. And uh, just based on uh, some race setup, some politics, some other stuff that was going on, he protested my being named to the team. And subsequently, I was removed and he was put on. And uh, I was super choked. Like, he called me uh, and I didn't even answer his phone call. And then we met in the office of the uh, Bobslake Canada Skeleton President's Office. We hadn't chatted yet, um, but we were in there. And I used the situation to leverage a little bit of uh, pocket change for myself as I would be realizing a starting um, if I didn't get named to the World Cup team. So me not challenging this, uh, this replacement of him with myself meant that I would be losing cash. I leveraged wow. the situation a little bit. Uh, he thought that we had been speaking beforehand and were plotting this, but I was just using it to sort of uh, talk it out my bum. But I took that as an opportunity to say, listen, I have a choice here. The only thing that I can control about this situation is my attitude. That's the one thing that I have control over every morning that I wake up. I can choose to be pissed off, feel like something's been taken from me, and subsequently race all season with a chip on my shoulder or i can look at this as what it is an opportunity to take a step back to learn to compete um where i will be one of the better sliders on tour having an opportunity to maybe get a medal uh do a second run with the pressure to perform to keep that spot that podium spot and i i, I took that attitude into that season i watched my friend go and he had an opportunity to go to the Olympics that year. I didn't. I would have been sort of robbing him of that final chance to, to go to the Games. And so I graciously said, I'm not going to contest this. You go have your World Cup season. See if you can go to the Olympics. Um, and I'll, I'll take a step back and do more development on the lower circuit. I did. I'd win my first race that season. I would do multiple races with the pressure to perform on my second run. Things that would have eluded me at the top level of racing on the World Cup. I would have had to learn that there at the top level. Hard as hell. And so one of the bigger components of my success, I think, was me making the conscious decision to take a step back, check my attitude, and move forward with some purpose in a really defeating type situation. 
And that paved the way for me to that next season, join the World Cup team and get a bronze in my very first race. And that wouldn't have happened had I joined the World Cup team the season before. I know that. Wow. It's maturity and growth all kind of rolled into one. You don't Nobody really... ever would have said Monty would have done anything mature <laughs> ever. But I'll give myself That's a true. pat on the back yeah. and maybe break my, uh, my shoulder there just saying, good job, John Boy. I, I can confirm that. Uh, <laughs> question number five. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? My mom has little, uh, little things that she throws out there. Dad's always been, you know, talk to me all the time uh, but mom's little little quotes and stuff always sort of landed on the mark and uh, yesterday she reminded me of one it was if you don't ask uh, you won't get and the other one that she had said to me it was related to business when I went away to school in <laughs> dating myself now in September of 1997 I left home and I went down east to Ontario to the Canadian Automotive Institute at the time CAI now I think it's the Canadian School of Automotive Business, and she was a realtor uh, for 30 years, and she had said to me that if you help people get what they need, you will in turn get what you want, which is a commission, a stipend, a referral, whatever. If you truly help people with their process and get them what they need, sometimes you have to help them discover that what they want isn't actually what they need. And that for me in the car business meant that mm. if somebody came in and was looking for something to pull their trailer and they were looking at a venture van, uh, sometimes it took some question asking. Uh, and if I didn't have what they need, happily, I would send them to somebody that maybe did have what they did need. They would come back subsequently for a car for their other child that maybe something that I did have. And I, I did own that quote. I did make sure that that was something that I thought about that resonated with me. And I did treat selling cars like solving somebody's transportation problem. I never sold a car in my life, but I did help solve some people's transportation problems. And that's how I looked at it. I know cliche. I know it sounds pretty brutal because, uh, well, used car salesmen are the Herb Tarlicks of the entire world and maybe not so trusted, but I did take pride in, in being somebody that you could trust in coming to my lot. Well, it goes back to that beer swigging moment. It's real. People respond to real, genuine moments of human interaction, right? You don't want to be sold something. It's just like, hey, how can I solve your problem? And you are a genuine guy, so I could see you doing pretty well in that, uh, in that <laughs> industry, at least. Uh, question 10, what advice, or sorry, question six, what advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could talk to him right now? Huh. Don't worry about being too small because there is a spot for everybody. And at 10 years old, I wasn't quite there with being as diminutive as I would get. Uh, my peers were bigger than me at 10, but they were much bigger than me at 13. And that was maybe the hardest uh, point in my life, trying to play ultra competitive hockey where we didn't have anywhere else to go. I was playing was AAA at the time in my first year of Bantam and on a team that was going to Western Canadian finals with no pickups, no tryouts. You paid $100, you played on our team, and we were playing against the best AAA major Bantam teams in the entire country. And that, that I was having to, you know, survive out there at times and uh, skate for my life, and that was hard. And, uh, and I just, I'd, I'd want my, my young self to know that as difficult as this is being as small as you are and not as skilled as Theron Flurry, um, 
there, there will be growth. So by the time I got to grade 12, I was, I was playing D. I was uh, average size by then, but it was a rough go there for a few years. And I still identify. Maybe it's because it happened in a formative period in my life where everybody was bigger than me, but I still identify as being very small. And uh, it's sort of maybe how I live my life, like a little bulldog, maybe a, a small man syndrome. I don't know. But um, yeah, I'd tell my 10 year old self that you're going to be little man, but uh, little big things come in little packages. So boom. I have a very similar story. Yeah. Like all the Pavel Bray is my favorite player of all time. Yeah. You know, Theron, of course. And then you see yep. the Johnny Goudreau's and stuff like that. Those are the guys that I root for and that I want to do well. Cause it's the exact same story. Well, Carl was bigger than you too, right? Like your he brother still is. He still, still is. Yeah. And so you were like me, small fry on the ice. Yep. But yep. you gotta be quick. You gotta be. Yeah. Quick. You had to be right. Like that's, that's what I leaned into with skating. That's why I thought coming to Calgary in 01, I tried speed skating before anything else. Oh I, yeah. I had to, avoid utter devastation every time I set foot on the ice growing up and speed skating can't be that hard right I want I've wanted to try that my whole life because but I heard the skates are really hard just the like the length and it's way harder than it looks instead of just hearing you get yourself to uh, Cindy Clausen Arena I'm sure they'll set up the speed skate pylons for you you do do some laps brother you're gonna love it and I think I read something recently if a girl can't at least humor me by telling me that I'm a wonderful (laughs) skater um she has no business in my life what was it you said as, as a canadian i want any potential girlfriend to at least feign interest in how good of a hockey skate or a hockey player or skater that i am as That's long right. as she pretends to care I, I, i'll i'll love her forever <laughs> well last question uh number seven thank you john for doing this this has been awesome i wanted to talk to you uh, at this level you know get a little deeper for a long time now sure. um what do you want to be remembered for hmm be an average. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you could say anything kinder than not that you're an average guy, but that you're just mm. like this average Joe Canadian. Um, that would be a real compliment. Uh, and the fact that I'm real, uh, those would be great compliments. That if anybody ever said he was just a real dude, um, that would mean that the things that I, I did or I achieved, they played sort of second fiddle to being somebody that people could relate to, that people saw maybe themselves in, or that people respected for just being genuine. And that would be what I would, that'd be the mark that I would want to hit. All the other things that I hope to do and accomplish, um, be superseded by the fact that uh, he was just a real dude. And if that's what they mentioned first, um, I know that I'll have um, hit the mark. Because I, I have no intentions of just uh, fading away into the, uh, into the night and not contributing. If I fade away into the night, uh, that's fine. I, I don't particularly uh, enjoy the spotlight necessarily, but uh, I'll use it. I, I treasure it for what it allows me to do in being a part of the Amazing Race Canada. But I will always work diligently towards uh, these causes and, and enriching the people that are most important in my lives, lives, uh, possibilities, futures, and uh, the extended community. Beautiful. Beautifully said, as always. Thank you so much, man. Uh, this has been a treasure for me, one of the greatest interviews I've ever done. So thank you so much for your time, for your energy, for your passion, for your realness, and just uh, for being the pride and joy of Russell. I appreciate it, brother. And I've done a, a couple podcasts now and, and a 
plethora of interviews. And I got to say, uh, you are exceptional at what you do, my friend. I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Nolan. Cheers, brother. Thanks again to John Montgomery for kicking off season three of the podcast. Uh, now that you know we've done almost 30 of these, John's is going to be forever sort of one of my favorites, and not only just because of our shared history, both being from Russell, but also because he's an incredibly genuine guy, as you just heard. Uh, he's humble, and I think I said it a couple times in the podcast, he is the quintessential Canadian. So thanks again, John. And thank you for listening to this. I recognize that, uh, you know, putting aside an hour of your time these days isn't the easiest thing in the world for people. And in this world of sort of ever increasing scarcity of free time, I'm I'm honored. I'm honestly honored that you chose to give us one of your hours. It means a lot. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, if you thought the conversation was worthwhile, I sent, please send it to a friend. The only way that I personally find new things these days, whether it's a song or a podcast or movie suggestion or anything is when a friend, you know, sends me a text or sends me a message with a, a recommendation. So I think it goes a long way, you know, whether it's a friend or family member, anyone, you know, who could potentially benefit from hearing John's message of, you know, positivity and, and focus and, and just mental acuity, toss them the link to this podcast and hopefully it will brighten their day just as much as I hope it brightened yours. If you haven't yet, you can also support the podcast by subscribing, whether it's through iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or anywhere you listen. Thank you for your support so far. Really appreciate it, and uh, it really makes this all worthwhile. All music on the Because and Effect podcast is composed and produced by Trenton Burton. You can hear his music at trentonburton.com. He actually just recently released a new song, and you can go to trentonburton.com to hear it. Special thank you to Robert Zirk for production assistance on the podcast, and thank you to Bertine Schmitz for help marketing the podcast. I greatly appreciate you and everyone at the foundation as well. Because in Effect is a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. You can follow them on social media by searching at WPGFDN, and you can follow me at Nolan Bicknell on Twitter and Instagram as well. That's all for this week. We'll see you next week, same time, same place, and remember, just keep swimming. Thanks. Bye-bye.